I want to talk to us today about the promise of uncertainty in 2021. It sounds a little bit like an oxymoron because when we think of a promise, we usually think of something that gives us certainty rather than a promise of uncertainty. But I'm noticing something happening. I'm noticing that, well, can we just have a moment of honesty here? Prophets, so-called, are missing it more and more and more. I mean, I read prophecies and I hear prophecies and it's like nobody ever seems to come forward and say, I, I'm sorry, guys, I really missed it there. There seems to be no accountability, and I, and I find that the prophecies, um, many of them have just simply missed it, and no one seems to be honest about that, or hardly anyone. Circumstances are increasingly unpredictable. I don't know how many cases I could point out in this last year when people gave certain forecasts of circumstances, felt like certain things were going to happen, and they didn't happen. Things have not turned out the way that we expected. I'm not on a downer in saying that. I simply believe that God is setting us up for a demonstration of Himself. Should that be a shock to us as we read the Scripture, that God is setting us up to demonstrate His sovereignty and that His ways are often not our ways. I, I read a quote from Oswald Chambers this last week. To be certain of God means that we are uncertain in all our ways. We do not know what a day may bring forth. This is generally said with a sigh of sadness. It should be rather an expression of breathless expectation. Amen to Oswald Chambers. Not that he needs me to amen him. But I want, to, uh, I want to draw from a scripture today that in my 55 years, I know that's hard for you to think that I have 55 years of ministry experience, but it is the truth. Actually, I could add on a few more than that, but I'll just stick with the 55 because that was when I was first licensed for the ministry. But I've run across a verse, and I'm going to teach it today for the first time ever. And every time I read it, I kind of read it, and I bump over it, and I kind of frown and go on. And it's describing one of David's mighty men. And it says, Benaiah was the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man from Kabzeel, who had done many deeds. He had killed two lion-like heroes of Moab. He also had gone down and killed a lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. And he killed an Egyptian, a spectacular man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand. So he went down to him with a staff, wrested the spear out of the Egyptian's hand, and killed him with his own spear. I bet you've read that too in 2 Samuel and kind of went, wow. Especially the part about the lion in the pit. He was the son of a warrior, so he had seen courage demonstrated in his father. He apparently single-handedly killed two champions of Moab. You have to do a little research beyond what I just read to get what I'm telling you right now, but uh, this is what I learned about it, because I'd never really done research on this scripture before. And he faced off against a giant of Egypt. The reference in Second Chronicles 11.23 
The reference there to this incident of him killing the Egyptian of, that was spectacular in appearance, in Second Chronicles, it actually gives the height of the man as five cubits. That's seven and a half feet tall. And that in a day when most people were much shorter than they are today. And he carried a spear, it says in Chronicles, like a weaver's beam. Now that, that happens to be the same language used of Goliath when David faced Goliath. And one of the translations says, one of the modern translations says, a spear that was like the side of a ladder. I thought that was a good way to say it that we would relate to as far as size is concerned. About two and a half inches around, and so when you get the length uh, approximately, it'd be like the side of a ladder, more, more appropriately. But the most puzzling part of Benaiah is this part about the lion and, and the pit on the snowy day. I'm sure he didn't wake up and say, you know, this would be a good day to go face a lion on a snowy day, and it's snowing in, in a pit somewhere. This had to be unplanned. It had to be likely an accidental encounter. So when I looked into it further, I found that in my Jacenius reference, it said that pit or sepulcher, like a cave in the rocks, so that made a lot more sense to me. So the likelihood seems to be that he went into this cave on a day when it was snowing, probably for shelter, probably to get out of the snow for a while and be in shelter, maybe build a fire in there. And, and perhaps and probably there was already a lion in there uh, in the back part of it. And because he came in from the light and his eyes wouldn't have adjusted yet, and this lion simply attacked him as he came into the space of this, of this beast. And so the battle happened, and Benaiah killed the animal with whatever hand weapon that he had in his hand. You don't plan something like this. It reminded me of the story of the Good Samaritan. Just going down the road, just probably to do some business, uh, to visit someone or to take care of something, he was just minding his own business, just traveling along, and it says he fell among thieves. He didn't plan it. He didn't say, oh, it's a good day to meet some thieves. He was on the road trying to do a, a fairly safe thing, and he fell among thieves. This could have happened to anyone. It could have happened to any one of us. It doesn't say he was white or black or whatever his race was. It doesn't say that he was educated or uneducated. All it says is that he was a man traveling and he fell among thieves. Things sometimes happen with no warning in our lives, and we just have to deal with it when it happens. Hmm. Someone said the only constant in life is change. Royce used to remind us of that. And as I said recently, if you want to make God laugh, just tell him your five-year plan. Last Sunday I read a portion from the Christmas story concerning Mary, and, and the message translation, uh, when the angel Gabriel appears to Mary, the message says that Gabriel said, God has a surprise for you, and Mary just about fainted in her heart. Life is full of surprises. Sometimes we like surprises, and sometimes we don't like surprises, because sometimes they're good surprises, and sometimes they're bad surprises, and sometimes they're just surprises in between, and we're not sure where to file them. And we spend a great deal of our life, we spend a great deal of time, we spend a great deal of treasure trying to avoid the bad surprises, don't we? 
We do that all the time. And planning is good. It's part of God's design for us. But for all of us, there will be times in life when we think we're just doing a normal thing. We're just seeking shelter in a cave on a snowy day. And all of a sudden, we face a lion in that situation that just came out of nowhere, and we have to deal with it. I find that many people have the mistaken idea that faith reduces uncertainty. I really haven't found that in my life. I have found that faith increases uncertainty. Because when we are walking in faith, there will be times when you will feel secure walking into a place by faith, and you're going to find a lion is there, crouched, waiting for you. Because faith walkers walk on the water. Faith walkers take the risk of that other step. And when you do that, you have to take the possibility in mind that there could be a lion anywhere. The Bible says that His Word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our pathway. But that is not picturing a beam that shines a mile ahead. It's picturing a little lamp about that long. I don't know if you've seen one from the Holy Land. About that long with some oil in it and it's got a little flame on the top. And it's one that you would shine at night to make sure you're not stepping on a snake or a stick or a sticker or something like that. It's a very small little light that shows you just where to take your next step, not to show you what is 10 miles ahead. His Word is that lamp to our feet and a light to our pathway. I find that following the Lord does not simplify my life. I find that, in many ways, following the Lord complicates my life. But if we're following Him, it complicates our life. Now, please hear this. In ways that they need to be complicated. In ways that they need... You, you heard that right. In ways that they need to be complicated. I said to you last week, and it is certainly the truth... I am a person, if you know me just a little bit, I, I really value order a lot. I really do. I value order a great deal. Not in perfection, but I really do. And a lot of my life is very orderly. It's, it's very, very predictable because um, I value order a lot. But... One of the things that God has dealt with me about through the years is the fact that we can be too orderly and never even go out on a snowy day. I mean, it's like I'm sure not going to go into a cave on a snowy day or if I can't see fully inside there. I'm not going to take any steps that I don't fully know everything. Truth is that when we take steps in a godly direction, it often brings about complications. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm speaking of complications 
that are good that bring about pruning and greater fruitfulness. Because Jesus said that I am the true vine, my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So those complications are often part of the pruning in our life. When we're experiencing complications, the Lord is often experiencing pruning. That will increase our fruitfulness. So that is his objective. Let me give you some examples. Marriage will make your life more complicated. Every married person here would say, mm -hmm, that's, that's true. Marriage makes life more complicated. If you want no problems, no complications, don't marry. Don't marry. If you marry, prepare for pruning. <laughs> right? All you married folks, yes. Now, you think, oh, Judy is just the sweetest person in the world. She is. She is. But I am telling you, there is a back of steel in that lady right there. She's not a Texan for nothing. <laughs> yeah. And she can be very specific. And we are very different in many ways. In fact, we laugh at it all the time. Because yesterday she was going to a sale for some ornaments at, down at uh, Dillard's. They have ornaments on sale, really good price there, and she, there were some that she really wanted, and so we went down, and so she's picking them out. And I said, how do you choose those that you're picking? And she said, well, because of this and this and this and this. And I said, you know which ones I would pick? And I, I reached down in the bucket, and it was completely different ones than she was picking. We both just laugh about it. We just, you know, it's like, okay, you pick the ornaments. I'll just watch. Kids complicate your life, right? Parents? Yes, amen. Now, the only people that are experts about raising kids are people that don't have any kids. Of course, they know how to do it. They can tell you, oh yeah, well, what you need to do is this, and what you need to do is this. Or, if they have one child, sometimes those people get really, really snooty. You know, it's like, we know how to do it. Because our little girl is perfect. We got one if you had two, you'd go, what happened? <laughs> I thought I had it figured out. This one's completely different. You get three, you start saying, mmm, this is really weird. You get to about four or five, you're, you start saying, I don't know anything about raising kids. Anybody, anybody help? I'm, I'm open. If you want to avoid those problems, though, don't, don't have children. They will complicate your life, right? No way? Yeah, mm-hmm. They will complicate your life, but you will be sitting alone one day with all your things around you and no children to mess them up. No lying on a snowy day. Even pets complicate your life. Right? Yeah. Who wants it? You know, I, I was raised on a farm. Animals to me are to make money off of. Somehow. And I have a real hard time with this thing. we got a little dog that's not worth a dime. All she does is eat and sleep, and, and now she's getting pretty old, and she pees on the floor. And she's like, what is this all about, right? I mean, Judy said some things last night when she was cleaning up a mess. It's like, okay, why is this dog alive? <laughs> you know, that's the Texan in her. You don't know that's there, see ya? 
Yeah, it's, it's, it's there. Friends complicate your life. Uh, you, you could have less complexities if you didn't have friends, right? I mean, really, just don't make any friends. Don't, don't make any friends. Don't make friends with your neighbors. Don't make friends with anybody. You'll have a lot less complicated. Good grief. Church complicates your life. You wouldn't have fewer complications. Don't have anything to do with church. You've often heard me say this, folks. You'll have this branded in your memory because I've said it so many times. If it's church, it's messy. Mm. If it's church, it's messy. And I can tell you this. Pastoring will complicate your life. (laughs) You know, now when I talk to a young man or a young lady and they feel like they want to be a pastor, they want to be a missionary, or even want to be on the staff in a church situation, the first thing I ask them is, is there anything else that you think could possibly be fulfilling in your life? Is there anything else? Because if there is, get hold of it. Because this is going to increase your complications a lot. But if God's calling you to go into a pit in the dark on a snowy day, go and be ready for battle. Be ready. Because just relationship with God complicates your life. Now, again, it complicates it in a way that needs to be complicated in order to prune our life. I hope you're getting that in what I'm saying. Sin, on the other hand, complicates our life in ways that they don't need to be complicated and that's harmful to us and others. See, there's the difference. There's a strategy in God's creation that brings about pruning and greater fruitfulness. The strategy of Satan is to destroy, steal, kill, and destroy. So the complication that sin brings about is destruction. What I'm saying is, though, spiritual maturity does not necessarily result in a higher degree of predictability in your life. I don't believe that Benaiah had a plan for life that sounded something like this. Number one, step number one. Kill a lion in a pit on a snowy day. Step number two, apply for a job with the king of Israel. Step number three, climb the ladder of success within that rank and file of people that are part of the warriors and the bodyguard around um, David. A lot of life just happens to us. It's unpredictable. And we who have an obsession to control, and there are, I won't ask for a show of hands, but there's mm, a number of us here, and I'd be the first. We who have an obsession to control, somewhere in the pain of our life, many times, we have to again and again ask Jesus to be in the driver's seat, don't we? Again and again, we have to go through that. We just never know when we're going to be looking at a place that looks to us like safety and rest, and there's a lion there waiting for us. So maturity prompts us in this way. 
Keep your sword sharp. Keep your sword sharp and handy. Keep it with you. Keep your mind aware. Be alert. Don't go to sleep on the switch. Be aware of what's going on around you. Satan goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Be aware of what's happening in your environment. Don't go dizzily through life saying, Oh, well, okay, sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. Notice what's going on. Let your eyes adjust to the light before you perhaps walk deeper into the cave. Just saying. And also, stay in shape. Benai would not have been able to, to confront that beast and kill it if he had not been in good physical health, good physical shape, and good mental shape so that he could move quickly with the way that lion was moving. Wow! He had to move fast. I think you would agree that one of our core values at, at Southgate is allowing people to share their hearts in our gathering times, just like we've done this morning. It's, it's, it's just one of the things that identifies us as a church body and as church family. But when I mention that to other pastors, because I'm with other pastors every week, when I mention that to other pastors, they either say, boy, I, I tried that and I really got burned bad. I mean, I really got burned bad doing that, and so I just I don't do that anymore. Or if they have a larger church, they'll say, well, you know, I know you can do that when you have fewer people, but when you have more people, you can't keep doing that. Now, is there unpredictability in that? Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't ever know what somebody's going to say. Do we have to sometimes clean up messes? My messes? Your messes? Yeah, sure. We say things, do things, and we kind of go, oops. A spill happens. we got to clean it up. Again, referring to when I talk to um, young people about being in the ministry, I tell them, one of your main jobs is to clean up messes. will be to clean up messes. That's what we do. We clean up messes. A lot. Now, is it worth it? I believe so. I believe so. Others would have a different opinion. I don't know that anyone here would remember very early when we came here. It just It's branded in my memory. It was about this time, about Christmas time. And we had an elderly gentleman, never been here before, never been here since. Came in, sat down near the back. Can't remember exactly where, but near the back. And so we just kind of opened it up, and he asked for the microphone. So we got a microphone over to him. And I mean, this guy started lecturing us on the fact that Christmas could not be in December and how we were so wrong to decorate like we were and to have this celebration in December because it couldn't be in December. And he was just, he was just rabid about that. I had a little bit of a mess to clean up there, you know? I mean, I didn't want to just send him out, but boy, you know? So you take a risk. I'm not cavalier in saying this, but we'd be foolish, though, to walk into every cave hoping to find a lion, looking for a battle. I told you before I have a love-hate relationship with Francis Chan. I, I really appreciate the guy a lot, and I read his books, and I go, bah! It's a lot like Watchman Nee. Some of you and I, we've... Interesting that both of them are Chinese, so I don't know if that has anything to do with their nationality or their way of thinking, but... 
Francis Chan, one of the points he makes in, I think it's his latest book, Epistles to the Church, in which he, he spends some time with this thought that people in China pray to be sent to the hardest places, places where they may be martyred. They, they pray and they ask the Lord to show them the hardest places so that they can go there. Now, I read that and I just went, wow, I don't think I'm there. I mean, I don't know about you. You might pray that prayer. I've never prayed that prayer in my life. So I think there are few. I think it's kind of like intercession. When the Lord showed me Jean was next to Jesus and there were only five people there, I knew it didn't mean there were only five intercessors in the whole world. But I think what it meant is there aren't many. There are not many. Not many like that. Not many that lay down their lives in intercession, literally. But I think I would be cavalier to suggest that we should just go around looking for lions. Jesus taught us to prepare for the battles of life, didn't he? Be ready. If you're going to go to war, get prepared for it. In fact, I would bet, can't prove it, but I would bet that Benaiah, after this, every time he went into a cave, I bet he had his hand on his knife. And I bet he waited till his eyes got adjusted so he could see back in there a little bit further before he walked on in. I bet. But if we follow the Lord, family, uncertainty will follow us. Not spiritual uncertainty. Your certainty and my certainty in salvation is established. Not, not biblical uncertainty, but circumstantial uncertainty. Circumstantial uncertainty that has to do with events of life. Circumstantial uncertainty like when Jesus said, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but I don't have anywhere to lay my head. See? One author that I was looking at this week in preparing this message, one author said that more than half of the time, Jesus did things the very opposite that, of what the disciples expected him to do. Now, I've not measured that, but I found that author to be very accurate in his research. More than half the time, Jesus did things that his disciples didn't expect. Hmm. Following him, I find, means more often we say what James taught. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It's even a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live or do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. The longer I live, the more I come into agreement with James' words. I didn't agree with those words early on. I thought I did, but not like I do today. Many years ago, I read an article by Jack Hayford. And the title of the article, I can still remember it. I actually couldn't find it on the internet. But the title was, Why I Don't Set Goals. 
And at the time, Jack was the pastor of Church on the Way, which is a, a very large and growing church at that time in California, Southern California. And what he explained in the article, I'm, I'm paraphrasing this just from memory, but it, it's very clear in my memory because it was a life-changing point for me in ministry leadership, why I don't set goals. He explained that our goals tend to tame our faith. They tend to put us in boundaries that God may be changing and adapting. He explained that we began to become captive to our goals that we set. And he explained in the article, he said, growing people and fruitfulness of people is our constant goal at Church on the Way. But numbers are not. Finances are not. Buildings are not our goal. Our goal is to simply serve people and help them grow. Now, whatever comes about as a result of that, we're not going to set goals in those other areas. It was an interesting article. We stop watching. We stop looking. We stop listening. Now, it makes life simpler. It does. It makes life simpler but at some point, we're no longer following the Holy Spirit. We're just following our goals. And we stop being sensitive to what God is doing right now. Right now. I, I remember Jim Mackey, a dear friend of mine. He's, he's talked here um, several times and been a friend of mine through for many years. Jim Mackey is a, a pastor and a, a missionary and just a, a real statesman of the Lord. I remember him in one of our pastor's meetings when he visited one time. He said, um, he said, you know, my heart gets a longing for going to a service where I can't predict what is going to happen. I thought, you might like Southgate. I don't know. Now you can carry that too far. I've seen guys that just try to mix things up, pastors that just try to mix things up and do things weird just for the sake of just weirdness. Don't do that. I don't, I don't agree with that at all. But we need to be open to what the Holy Spirit is doing and move. Find out which way. We used to sing a song in New Zealand. I, I've never heard it sung in America, I don't think. And part of the words were, find out which way God is moving and move with God. Maybe some of you have known that song, but I, I never heard it here before. So there's kind of an unpredictability that I think we begin to make peace with. <laughs> Little aside here, a little footnote is that when I do weddings, you know who my favorite people are in the wedding party? It's the little flower girl and the little ring bearer boy. And especially when they're about three years old, I don't care how many times you practice with them, they're going to do something crazy. You know, they're going to be walking down the aisle and they see mom and they go, ah, and they, you know, they, they just get carried away. Or they drop the stuff or they... They, go, they walk a different way than you plan for them to. You know, kind of have to herd them to the front. And then moms get up and they start trying to do something. It's one of my favorite things about weddings. It's what happens with ring bearers and little flower girls in weddings. I've seen these little girls with flower petals walk all the way to the front and never throw a petal out. And then get right up here and go, poop. <laughs> hey, I got rid of them. Wasn't that what the job was? No amount of, of, no amount of practicing is going to get that unpredictability out of it. And it's really kind of part of the delightfulness. 
I think our bottom line is, do we really believe God is sovereign when nothing is going our way? Do we really believe God is good when bad things are happening to us? In July of 2019, I stumbled into a pit and I faced a lion that I never didn't see it coming. I don't think my knife was very sharp. <laughs> I don't think I was very focused on what was happening. 52 years is a long time. And uh, we all want and expect sameness. We all do. But I was hit head-on with a 500-pound beast. And uh, to be honest, I had no idea what I was doing. Didn't know how to handle it. You know, you were there. You walked with me. Thank you. And those points of life, we're just surviving, aren't we? We're just surviving. I will, I will never say God took Gene from me. I will never say that, but I will say that he is sovereign to make beauty for ashes and the oil of joy for mourning. In the Old Testament, Joseph looked in the rearview mirror of his life, and he looked at the dysfunction of his family. He looked at the injustice of his brothers. He looked at the betrayal and lying of Potiphar's wife and others. He looked at all the pain that he had endured. And this is what he said to his brothers. But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. God often has a bigger plan when we face our lions. We have a promise of uncertainty ahead. And that's a big part of the motivation that Judy and I have in the next chapter of our lives. Because that, the uncertainty that 2020 has been, has really wrecked a lot of churches. Especially smaller churches. Churches that didn't have a, a Jonathan Alvarado. Churches that didn't have any padding in their offerings at all. Any padding in their finances. Churches that were right on the edge. So that's a big part of our motivation. And maturity means that we don't, we don't fake it when we don't understand what's going on. When a child asks me, why does God make mosquitoes? I just say, I don't know, babe, but we just got to deal with them. See, I'm, I'm, I'm totally out of snappy answers. I'm, I'm fresh out of just clever answers. They're like little lions in pits, just waiting to just get you. And we don't know why they're there. We just know they're coming for us. Yeah. I file, those, I file the mosquito doctrine under Deuteronomy 29, 29. That says the secret things belong to the Lord our God. Hmm. 
I like the message. It says, God our God will take care of the hidden things. <laughs> For me, that's where I file mosquitoes and what I think about them. The Bible also says in Psalm 5 and verse 1, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. The word meditation there could better be translated groaning or sighing. I think those are the kinds of prayers we pray when we face uncertainty, when we don't know what's going to happen. Or we've been through some things and it's like, oh God, I don't think I can handle that anymore. It's groaning and sighing. It's those imperceptible words that we speak, the groanings which cannot be uttered. I read a quote from a book by uh, Ted Loder. It was called Letters of Grace. And he said, how shall I pray? Are tears prayers, Lord? Are screams prayers? Or groans or sighs, or curses? Can trembling hands be lifted to you, or clenched fists, or the cold sweat that trickles down my back, or the cramps that knot my stomach? Will you accept my prayers, Lord, my real prayers, rooted in the muck and mud and rock of my life? And not just the pretty cut flowers, gracefully arranged bouquets of words. Will you accept me, Lord, as I really am? Messed up mixture of glory and grime? <laughs> I think Psalm 5 handles that. The Lord hears our groaning and our sighing. Church must be a safe place for people to sigh. Church must be a safe place for people to groan and not have a beautiful bouquet of words, as he said. Church has to be a place for the imperfections that we discover in ourselves and others in seasons of uncertainty like 2020 has been. But being real is not easy, is it? It's not really easy to be real. Not really. As the skin horse said, sometimes it hurts. I'm referring to a, one of my favorite quotes from Marjorie Williams' book, Velveteen Rabbit. The skin horse had lived longer in the nursery than any of the others. He was so old that his brown coat had bald patches, showed the seams underneath, and most of the hairs in his tail had been pulled out to string bead necklaces. He was wise, for he had seen a long succession of mechanical toys arrive and boast and swagger, and by and by break their mainsprings and pass away. And he knew that they were only toys and would never turn into anything else. For nursery magic is very strange and wonderful. And only those playthings that are old and wise and experienced like the skin horse understand all about it. What is real? asked the rabbit one day 
when they're lying side by side near the nursery fender before Nana came to tidy the room. This is 1922 language. Does it mean having things that buzz inside you or a stick-out handle? Real isn't how you're made, said the skin horse. It's a thing that happens to you when a child loves you for a long time. Not just to play with, but really loves you. Then you become real. Does it hurt? asked the rabbit. Mm, sometimes, said the skin horse, for he was always truthful. When you're real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once? Like being wound up, he asked, or bit by bit? Mm, it doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You become. It takes a long time. That's why it doesn't often happen to people who break easily or have sharp edges or who have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you're real, most of your hair has been loved off, your eyes drop out, and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. But those things don't matter at all because once you are real, you can't be ugly except to people who don't understand. 